the goal of this relationship is not for me to change my partner into a different person, but to, for me to figure out how I can adapt to this person I've decided to marry. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. Our next guest is a social psychologist and distinguished professor emeritus at the University of California at Santa Cruz. He has previously taught at Harvard, the University of Minnesota, the University of Texas, and completed his teaching career at Stanford University as a distinguished visiting professor. As a researcher, he is best known for his groundbreaking experiments on social influence and persuasion, as well as for the invention and evaluation of the jigsaw classroom. He has written or edited 22 books, including The Social Animal, now in its 12th edition, and Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me with Carol Tavris. He is actually the only person in the 125-year history of the American Psychological Association to have received all three of its highest awards for distinguished research, distinguished teaching, and distinguished writing. In 1981, he was named Professor of the Year by the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education. In 1973, he received the Humanitarian Award from the Texas Classroom Teachers Association for his work on training teachers to use and evaluate the Jigsaw Classroom. Among his other awards are the Gordon Alport Prize for his contributions to interracial harmony and the William James Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Psychological Science. In 2002, he was cited as one of the 100 most influential psychologists of the 20th century. Please welcome to the show, Professor Elliot Aronson. Professor Aronson, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Good to be with you, Jared. Your mentors uh, really stack up in history. During your undergrad, you had Abraham Maslow, your master's degree mentor was Dave McClelland, and your PhD advisor was Leon Festinger. And if we look back at the, you know, the 20th century, these are three of the top 20 psychologists, and you worked with all of them. And I know it's going to be a hard question to answer, but I am interested. What role do you think has chance played in your life? Uh, almost totally. Uh, it was, it, <laughs> uh, I, certainly, uh, meeting those three guys and working with them, I didn't plan any of that. Um, and I'll give you, I'll try to make this story uh, as brief as I can, but it's a pretty long story. I, I, um, I almost didn't get to go to college because we were, we were dirt poor. Um, my father never quite recovered from the Great Depression. Uh, he was um, uneducated, unemployed, and very unhappy during all of my childhood. Uh, and then um, when I was in high school, he died. Of, he got cancer and died, and we were in debt. And I didn't think I'd go to college. But and my grades weren't that good. My grades were um, mostly C's with a few B's thrown in there. I, I was not a very good student in high school. And, uh, but when I took the SATs, uh, they were off the charts, which was a, a surprise to me and certainly all of my high school teachers. 
but I was all set to go to work at on the assembly line at the Ford Motor Company when um, Brandeis University that had recently opened its doors, it started just two years before. They didn't, when I got there, they didn't even have a senior class. They, I was a freshman and uh, there were only two, two layers above me. Um, but they offered me a scholarship, a work-study scholarship, which was amazing. I could not have gone to college without that. And they were the only school that offered me a scholarship. So that's the only reason I went to Brandeis. Um, then I got there, and because of my the Great Depression and my father's difficulty, uh, I, I saw him actually weeping early in the morning uh, at the kitchen table feeling so so bad that he couldn't couldn't put food on the table we were in real real deep poverty in the 1930s that when i got to brandeis and then i i was really loving college it, i loved learning stuff i loved some of the professors but when it came to choosing a major i figured because of my father's difficulties financially, I might as well choose something practical. So I decided to major in economics, <laughs> which was a, a mistake because I really disliked it a lot. But I was, <laughs> I, uh, I thought, well, I really should be doing something for the future. Um, one day I was having coffee with an attractive young woman that I was interested in. Uh, I was interested in getting to know better. And uh, mm -hmm. we were having a wonderful conversation, and I thought I was impressing her. And then she suddenly leaped up and looked at her watch and said, oh, my God, I'm going to be late for class. And she went off to a class. And I, so I went along with her, uh, thinking that maybe we could sit next to each other. It was, it was a large lecture class. Um, and uh, she told me, and I thought we could sit in the back of the room and maybe hold hands or something. When we got there, uh, it was a course in introductory psychology being taught by some guy named Abraham Maslow that I had never heard of. Um, and he, he was raising some questions that I had raised when I was a little kid, when I was nine years old and used to get um, bullied uh, uh, by a bunch of anti-Semitic teenagers a lot. And I remember at that time, when I was nine or 10 years old, wondering why they hated Jews so much and wondering if why they hated me so much when they didn't even know me and wondering if they got to know me better and found out what a sweet and um, generous little boy I was, would they um, like me better? And then when I wondered if they got to like me better, would they then hate other Jews a little bit less than they now do? And when I was sitting in the back of that lecture hall where Abraham Maslow was lecturing, he was raising some of the very same questions that I had raised when I was nursing a bloody nose and a split lip, sitting on a curbstone in, in my hometown and I thought, oh, my God, there's a whole science called psychology that where people raise questions like that. The very next day, I switched my major 
from from economics to psychology, and eventually I became a protege of Abraham Maslow's, who really took me under his wing and taught me a great deal. Um, he was grooming me to become a psychotherapist, but by midway through my senior year, I had applied to several graduate programs in clinical psychology, but by midway through my senior year, because I was working uh, nights and weekends in a mental hospital, I really decided that I wasn't that interested in becoming a clinician, so I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Uh, I didn't have any clear map of the future in my mind. And then uh, Maslow got a note from David McClelland, who was a friend of his, saying, asking if there were any bright people around who were about to graduate and didn't have any clear plans because they had a, <laughs> they had a small master's degree program, a terminal master's program, and he needed to have at least one person in there so that they could serve as a teaching assistant while they got a master's degree. And nobody had applied, uh, nobody uh, that they want, would wanted to admit. And so I took that, he, so Maslow uh, posted that letter and told me about it. And I applied for that job and uh, to the master's program with McClelland, and he accepted me. And I spent two wonderful years at Wesleyan, um, really filling in on my knowledge and learning a lot from Dave McClellan. In my second year at Wesleyan, McClellan invited a couple of guys who had been in the master's program with him a few years earlier, uh, Ralph Haber and a guy named uh, Richard Alpert. Um, and mm -hmm. they came for the summer and worked with me on some research for McClellan. And we all got to know each other better, and and uh, and uh, they got to know my wife also. I had gotten married just before going to Wesleyan, and the four of us became got very close. Uh, and they were in the PhD program at Stanford, and at the end of the summer, they said, "Hey, you really ought to apply for Stanford because it's really nice out there." and and uh, we're doing really well. And with your background at Brandeis and Wesleyan, you will do well too. So I did. I applied at Brandeis at uh, Stanford, and was accepted. And I arrived at Stanford the same year that Leon Festinger arrived. Uh, and I didn't know he was going to be there, and obviously he didn't know I was going to be there. <laughs> and. Uh, 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 I thought that was the reason he went. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, we didn't really like each other very much for the whole first year. I took a seminar with him, and he was a, a, the smartest guy I ever met, and also one of the toughest, most demanding, um, and most aggressive guys. He he would make mince meat out of graduate students if we weren't fully prepared in that seminar, really fully prepared, he would be uh, extremely hard on us. Um, but he was the smartest guy I ever met. And in spite of his nastiness and aggressiveness, 
I figured this is a guy I really want to work with. So here are these three guys. All of them were in actually in the voted to be in the top 15 of psychologists in the 20th century. And I worked with each of them quite by accident. I didn't plan it. Uh, I just happened to fall under their influence. And especially uh, Festinger, who uh, was a master craftsman as an experimental psychologist. And he really taught me everything I know about how to do experiments. Uh, and not only, and, and at the time he was developing this brand new theory that was, I found very interesting, the theory of cognitive dissonance. And um, it turns out that that theory really revolutionized social psychology and made changes that uh, we're still working on um very exciting theory and again festing and i eventually eventually became uh, he treated me as a colleague and uh after a rough start uh we became very close friends and um all of this again by accident i didn't plan any of it how much credit do you take for those three guys success most of it uh, almost none. I, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, with Fe- with Festinger, Festinger, you know, with Maslow gave me an awful lot, a uh, kind of a, a a general viewpoint of how to be a professional. And his he, Maslow was not a very good scientist, but he was his his humanistic psychology. He was the founding father of the humanistic psychology movement. And uh, his general philosophy of using psychology to improve the human condition really got into my bones. It became a a guiding force for me. Uh, Festinger was a huge success. He was considered the brightest young social psychologist in the world at the time that I met him, so I don't I don't take any credit for his success. <laughs> On the other hand, um, when we worked closely together, and uh, I learned a lot from him, and I think he gained something from me because I really helped him develop the theory. I actually modified the theory a little bit, the theory of cognitive dissonance. Um, and uh, it, it was a wonderful mutual uh, relationship that we had. We really did work together as if we were colleagues. And I was only, you know, 23 years old when I met him. And um, it, it was a major turning point in my life. You spoke about using psychology to improve the human experience. Why do you think that resonated so strongly with you? Well, part of it is... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, growing up in the Great Depression and seeing my father so unhappy uh, and experiencing anti-Semitism directly, mm-hmm. I realized there was something wrong with that picture. And there, we're living in a country that is probably the most diverse in the history of the world. And uh, people are having trouble getting along with each other. and um, 
uh, I think that social psychology and at least if it, with the kind of um, motivation that uh, Maslow instilled in me has a lot to say about that. We have a lot that we can offer about making this a better place for everybody, uh, that, that we can celebrate diversity and learn from the diversity that exists all around us. And it can, it can enrich our lives to be surrounded by people who are different from us and who grow up with a different set, maybe set of values, but certain, certainly different customs and ideas. And the diversity can be really exciting instead of it being a, a reason for discrimination and for prejudgment. Uh, and that's, that, I find that one of the great tragedies of this country. Mm-hmm that we, we, we seem to be unhappy with the diversity that should be a source of great gratification. And that's what I consider to be in the realm of social psychology. And this is something that I, I maybe can do something about. Can you speak to that further? What, what can be done? Well, one of the things that I developed, uh, what, well, it's again it's a long story and it's hard to take things out of sequence but i i'll try to um i'll try to make sense out of it uh for your listeners and what it is is that what i learned from leon festinger was how to do experiments how to do experiments about important issues but what i learned from maslow was how to do things that could be really useful to society and useful to the individuals that I work with. Uh, In the early part of my career, I was excited about doing experiments primarily just on how the human mind works, which is exciting enough as it is, and that's what Festinger taught me how to do. Uh, But then uh, I spent, when I was about um, 35 years old, I was teaching at the University of Texas uh, at Austin when the, the Texas schools were desegregated and all hell broke loose. Black kids, white kids, Mexican-American kids were having fistfights, ethnically motivated, racially motivated fistfights in the corridors and in the schoolyards. And there was a moment where they actually had to shut the schools down after Austin was desegregated. Uh, And the problem was that the black kids and the Mexican-American kids were, had always been residentially segregated. Uh, The white kids lived in a kind of a a beautiful section of Austin and the black and Mexican-American kids lived in a less beautiful section of Austin, and they hardly knew each other. They hardly had any contact with each other because of residential segregation. And then when the schools were desegregated, there was a lot of hostility. Now, one of my former students was an assistant superintendent of schools in Austin. And so he called me and asked me if I could do anything about the situation that had developed. 
and I made a deal with him. I said, if I find something out, I'll come in and help you with it, but I don't want to just slap, slap on a Band-Aid. If I find something out that I find useful, I'd like you to promise me that you will implement it in the entire school system. And he made that promise. And I invented, my students and I went in and we looked at, we looked at the situation, we observed the classrooms, and we came to the conclusion that the elementary school classroom, all classrooms in, in public schools are highly competitive, where the kids are vying against each other for the respect of the teacher, who is the only important person in that classroom. That's the way it's structured. It's structured with, a, uh, we'll take like a typical sixth grade class, teacher stands in front of the room and asks a question, and then seven or eight hands go up, and the kids, they don't just raise their hands casually, they're practically leaping out of their seats <laughs> to get the teacher's attention because the teacher's approval is very important to them. They don't care about the other kids. And when the teacher calls on one kid, you can hear a groan go up from the other kids in the class who had their hands up because they realize uh, they lost an opportunity to show the teacher how smart they are. In the meantime, there are another 20 or 25 kids that don't have their hands up. They're looking down at their shoes because as you may remember, Jared, from your days mm -hmm. in the sixth grade, if you if the teacher <laughs> that was me. if the teacher is, is calling on some if raises a question and you don't know the answer, the last thing in the world you want to do is make oh, con yeah. eye contact with her or him <laughs> because then you can get humiliated if she calls oh, on yes. you and you don't know the answer. Story of my life. Yeah, well, mine too. And and uh, <laughs> and so we saw that. And, you know, I, I had instructed my graduate students to stay in the back of the room and sort of look invisible, pretend you're invisible, and also pretend you're a visitor from Mars. Pretend you've never been in a classroom before. And I want you to note down everything that happens in the classroom. And then afterwards, I want you to rank order what you write down in terms of frequency, how frequent are these things? And what and I and the kids fanned out throughout several schools, observing the classrooms. And every single one of my seven or eight graduate students had the same thing on the top of the list. The classroom is a very competitive place. And it's it was competitive in a way where most of the kids, almost all the kids who had their hands up were white. And as almost all the kids who were looking at their shoes were either black or brown. Uh, and it turned out when we investigated this issue that the kids coming from East Austin, from the, from, um, the old section of Austin, were, came into, like, they would come into the fifth grade class reading at a fourth grade level, whereas the kids from the better schools in Austin, the white kids were coming into class um, 
uh, at the sixth grade. It's coming into the fifth grade at the six, reading at the sixth grade level. So it, there was an unequal playing field where the minority kids were guaranteed to lose. So you have a highly competitive situation with an unequal, uneven playing field. And what was happening was, what happened in the classroom was exacerbating whatever existing stereotypes these kids had had of each other. The white kids thought that the black kids and the Mexican-American kids were either stupid or lazy because they were, you know, they were looking at their shoes. And the minority kids thought the white kids were show-offs, teachers, pets, overly uh, assertive, etc. It just it just confirmed the existing stereotypes. And you wonder why there were a lot of fistfights in the, in the classrooms. Uh, <laughs> if someone had intentionally invented a classroom structure that would be guaranteed to make desegregation fail, they couldn't have done a better job. But nobody did that intentionally. It's just the way things were in this country. So what my students, my graduate students and I did was we invented a different kind of structure for the classroom um, a, where kids were forced to cooperate with each other rather than compete against each other. We structured it so we divided the class into uh, small groups of five or six students each. Uh, and each of these groups was as diverse as they could be. They had boys and girls in them. They had uh, kids of all three races uh, in them. Uh, they had bright kids and they had less bright kids in them. So each group was very diverse. And then we would divide the lecture into five or six segments. So, for example, uh, I said the lecture. I meant to say the lesson into five or six segments so that each kid had one segment say they were reading Lives of Great Americans. And let's say that one of the things they were supposed to uh, learn is the life of Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, we, took, we divided her life story into five or six segments, gave each kid in each of the groups one of the segments so that within any one of the groups, um, the only access each kid had to any of these segments was by um, was by listening to the kid who had that segment so that each kid had a valuable piece of information to share with the other kids. So instead of competing against each other, they were working together uh, on, on this project. And cooperation builds trust it, and it also builds empathy. Because if all you're doing is competing to show the teacher how smart you are, you don't care about any of the other kids. But if you're in a group that's working together this way, by the way, we called this technique the jigsaw classroom because it worked like a jigsaw puzzle with each kid having a vital piece and they had to put the pieces together to make for the entire uh, biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, for example. After a while, 
at the beginning, the kids were still competing because competition dies hard. But the teacher's job now is to float around from group to group. And if she sees kids doing things like saying, you know, let's say Carlos, there's a Mexican-American kid, Carlos, um, he speaks a little, with a little bit of an accent. Um, he, he speaks English perfectly, but it's a little accent. Kids were making fun of him. Uh, he was a little nervous having to recite his part to the other kids. And so one kid would say, ah, you don't know it. Another kid would say, you're stupid. And the teacher's job was to say, hey, that might be fun for you to do, but it's not going to help you learn about Eleanor Roosevelt's middle years. For that, you have to really pay attention to Carlos. And the, the quiz is going to take place in 15 minutes. And that shows the kids that this is important. And in order to do well, they have to pay attention to every single kid in the class. And here's the beauty of it. If I know that Carlos needs encouragement and needs me to ask him some really good questions in order for him to bring out the material, then that's what I'll do because it's in my own interest to do it. If I, uh, if I know that Mary um, tends to talk too much and needs to be reined in a little bit, that's what I'll do because that'll help the group function more smoothly. Kids learn to pay attention to each other and they learn to put themselves in the other student's shoes. And that's what we call empathy. And empathy is incredibly important. And what we found after only six weeks using the Jigsaw Classroom, comparing it with students in regular traditional classrooms being tested on exactly the same material, the kids, and, and we pitted our kids in the Jigsaw Classrooms against kids in traditional classrooms who were being taught by the teachers who were designated as some of the best teachers in the entire system. So we were, we were stacking the deck against our hypothesis, against our system. And we found that the kids in Jigsaw Classrooms learned the material better. Among those kids, absenteeism went down, they liked school more, they came to school more regularly than the kids in traditional classrooms. Their self-esteem improved, prejudice went down, and empathy developed. Uh, they, they learned to empathize with each other more. They could put themselves in the shoes of another person because cooperating leads to that kind of outcome. So that's the kind of thing we did in Austin. And now, this was back in 1971 when we did our first experiments. It revolutionized the Austin school system, and it's now spread throughout the country. And uh, it is going strong, even though I have had nothing to do with it for the past 20 years. <laughs> This, this may be an impossible question to answer, but if we could make, um, wave a magic wand and, and every classroom was facilitated using the jigsaw method, what do you think uh, polarity and racism would look like in, in the country now? Oh, I have no doubt about it. I think, uh, I think racism would be at a low ebb. I think people 
would would learn to appreciate one another, to appreciate the differences among their themselves between themselves and their classmates. Um, it, when you see a jigsaw group functioning well, and and almost all of them do function well, um, it's it, it's like watching a really good basketball team function well. It doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't matter who ends up putting the ball in the hoop. You pass the ball around until somebody gets an open shot, and that's what that's like. It builds a kind of a camaraderie, which is uh, is quite touching to see it happen. Uh, oh, I love that analogy. I, I've often said that if I, if, you know, if if I for if for one year I could be the czar of education, <laughs> the dictator of education, and made jigsaw classroom universal, it would reduce bullying. It would enormously. It would it, it would. It would it would lead kids to appreciate each other a lot more. Uh, and I think it would be a hugely important thing for this country. And, and I'm sure have some real societal implications as those kids grew up and, uh, and maintained that empathy for their you know, colleagues that were of a different ethnicity or background or orientation. Yeah, um, yeah I, I wish the same. That you were czar, I mean... Czar Aronson. I can see it. Oh, yeah. I'd need a special uniform, <laughs> you know, with epaulets. Yeah. <laughs> it's really not a uniform without epaulets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I, I put the cart before the horse because I spent the first 15 years of my career doing basic research on how the human mind works and the rest of my career trying to apply it to situations that might be helpful to people. Um, so I just told you, you about- You merged the, the Festinger and the, and the Maslow. Yeah, that's, that's Festinger and Maslow, who, by the way, really disliked each other a lot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> When I was at Stanford, and I used to correspond with Maslow, and he once wrote to me, oh, I actually went back uh, east to visit my mother, and I had lunch with Maslow, and Maslow said, uh, oh, who are you working with out there at Stanford? And I said, oh, um, this guy, Leon Festinger. And Maslow said, Festinger, that son of a bitch, how can you stand him? And I, and I said, no, 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 you, you, if, when you get to know him, you really, you, you would like him. But then about a year later, Festing and I were having a drink, and uh, I was still a graduate student. And he said, uh, how did you first get interested in uh, psychology? And I told him about Abraham Maslow. And he said, Maslow, that guy's ideas are so bad, they're not even wrong. <laughs> and by, by that, he meant they were untestable. And he's right. They're right. untestable, but they're... Um, they're lovely ideas. You just can't. They are lovely. Them, you can live by them. Well, we should have gotten those two in a jigsaw classroom. Oh, that would have been very, very good and very interesting. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of those two and, and Festinger in particular, I'd like to turn to cognitive dissonance. You know, one of the theories that you, um, you know, developed so deeply. And, and I'm hoping that maybe we can begin just by, um, by the story of you know, if you can just tell us, how did the theory of cognitive dissonance kind of germinate out of this earthquake in India? Oh, yeah. Well, 
um, Leon Festinger was was uh, intra. He was studying rumor transmission, um, and um, and there was this interesting event that happened. There was an earthquake in India, and the people who were living right at the epicenter of the earthquake. There was a series of earthquakes that uh, happened over like four or five days, and people at the ep- at or near the epicenter, began to spread rumors that help was on the way, that bulldozers were coming to help dig people out, that there was a huge water shortage because the cisterns had broken and water, the pipes had broken and the water supply was down. And they so were saying they were coming to repair. And all of these rumors about good things happening, which was not surprising because it made people feel better. But people living 20 or 30 miles away from the epicenter were spreading rumors about greater disasters coming, that there were fires coming, that there were windstorms, that there were all kinds of things that weren't even happening. And Festinger was wondering, why that difference? And why would people spread rumors about impending doom when they were uh, upset? And what he realized was that the people living in the epicenter were frightened to death, but they knew what they were frightened of. They were right there watching the buildings crumble and everything. The people who were 10, 15, 20 miles outside of the epicenter were really frightened because the earth was shaking and things were happening, but the disasters weren't that great. So what Festinger figured was that they were spreading rumors about worse things happening somehow in order to justify the incredible fear that they were experiencing for no good reason. There wasn't a lot of bad things happening to them. That's, and that gave him the idea that when people have a cognition that goes against their own internal experience, those two cognitions don't gel very well, and they have to f- invent something that gives them a way, gives the people a way of bringing those two ideas together. So that if I'm really terrified, and there's nothing out there, very little out there to be terrified about, I will add terror, a terrible prediction of a terrible event in order to justify the fear that I'm experiencing. Anyway, that's where he got the idea. I'm not sure if his reasoning is uh, is good, but it was an interesting idea. And then he developed that into a theory which has produced more research than any single theory in social psychology. Uh, His idea came in the mid-1950s, 56, 57, and and, uh, in in the next 30 years, uh, we did hundreds of experiments that really did change the way we think of, um, of everyday life, of the way people live their lives. What was it about cognitive dissonance that you think 
kind of resonated so strongly that led to it being the number one most researched topic in the last 60 years? Well, um, there are a few ways, to, to a few different tacks I could take to answer that question. One is, within the field of psychology, the dominant theory at the time was, uh, I would call, call it uh, radical behaviorism. It's uh, B.F. Skinner, for example, who uh, the notion being that rats, pigeons, monkeys, gorillas, and people do things in order to get a reward for doing it. And that theory dominated all of psychology for a, a very long time. And it's not wrong. It's mostly right. People do do things in order to get a reward. And through the notion of secondary reinforcement, reinforcement is the reward you get. For secondary reinforcement, the notion is that anything associated with reward will come to be loved. So for example, why do uh, babies love their mothers? Because their mother breastfeeds them and the breast, <laughs> Drinking from the breast when you're really hungry is a great reward, <laughs> and the person that's attached to that breast will become very attractive to you because she is the conveyor of that reward. Um, and, you know, you, you work at a job and you get paid for it. Um, now, what dissonance theory did was say, okay, that's very interesting as far as it goes. But what's even more interesting is that people think. And because we think, we often go way beyond simple reinforcement. Uh, rewards are important, but not the most important thing in the life of human beings. Um, let me make a distinction right here. Let's, let's talk about conformity. How do you get people to conform? How do you get people to do the things you want them to do? If we take a step backwards, suppose you have a child who's 10 years old and loves to beat up on his seven-year-old kid brother. How do you get him to stop doing that? Um, well, you... There are three levels of conformity. Uh, the, the lowest level is compliance. You can get your kid to comply if you give him a huge reward for not beating up his little brother, or if you threaten him with a severe punishment for beating up his little brother. For example, you can take off your strap and say, you see this strap? I'm going to give you 20 whacks across your bottom if you touch your brother. Chances are he will not beat up on his little brother while you're there watching him. Um, that's a tough, uh, either, either a big reward or a big threat of punishment will get him to stop. The question is, Will it get him to believe that beating up on little kids is not a good thing? Uh, we'll hold that question in abeyance for a moment. <laughs> the next level is that identification, something I call the good old Uncle Charlie phenomenon, where you believe something 
because somebody you respect believes it, okay? So if somebody comes on national television and tells you uh, that, um, oh, I don't know, let's take a random example, that uh, the whole <laughs> COVID uh, thing is a hoax and it really isn't working and it was the Democratic Party was using it just as a way of distracting people, but there really isn't COVID and it's nothing to worry about. You, you don't have to get vaccinated. You don't have to wear a mask. It's Everything is fine. Uh, and if Uncle Charlie believes that, and you're a little kid, you might believe it mm. too because he's your Uncle Charlie and you love him and you want to think the way he thinks, okay? Now, the next thing happens is when you get to be 18 years old, you go off to college and you may learn some things from some of your liberal professors who you also like that are different from what your Uncle Charlie taught you. And therefore, you might change your opinion in order to bring it closer to the next person you're identifying with, okay? So it's both of these things are very impermanent and don't lead to permanent behavior. The next step I call internalization. It's when you take an idea and you make it yours. Um, and the way to do that is rationally, uh, that if something really jibes with all of your values, then that's the kind of thing you're going to believe in. If you believe that some of these um, notions, uh, some of these uh, false uh, rumors uh, about Fauci or whatever are wrong, and he's really a decent man who's doing the best job he's, he, he can possibly do, then if you believe that rationally, and, uh, and you take action, you get vaccinated, you wear a mask, and you don't come down with COVID, whereas your next door neighbor does come down with COVID because he doesn't wear a mask, he doesn't get vaccinated, then you've got some semblance of scientific evidence that will make that belief internalized because it makes sense to have that belief. Those are the three levels. And what you want to do in child rearing or in anything is get help that the belief become internalized. Because, for example, if you want your child not to go around beating up on little kids, you want to, to get him to believe that beating up on little kids is not a good thing to do. Not because he's afraid you're going to punish him, and not because you give him a reward temporarily for not doing it, uh, because it's not a good thing to do. That's internalization. And if you look back at what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, that's exactly what the Jigsaw Classroom does. People begin to listen to each other because it gets them to understand the material better and in the process, they learn that the other people in their group has interesting, have interesting things to say. And Carlos, for example, is not as dumb as you previously thought he was. As a matter of fact, if you really listen to him, he's pretty damn smart. 
and your attitude changes and that becomes internalized because it's really based on your own experience and not you don't have it out of fear of punishment or hope for reward or because somebody you admire has that belief and you and you grab onto that belief without even thinking about it so these are the things about how to get people to to behave in ways that make sense to them and how to cherish those those uh behaviors and those beliefs and correct me if i'm incorrect here but when you're you're speaking about that 10 year old that you want to stop uh him bullying his seven-year-old younger brother, let's say, that actually what we should be doing is we should be, instead of giving out large punishments, should we in fact be giving out small punishments? And why is that the case? Well, I'll tell you, this, the, the best way to do it, or one good way to do it, you don't, you know, th- there was a time when people, when um, Schools were rewarding people for doing well on an exam. Well, they do by giving them good grades, but they were giving them monetary rewards. And that's that's going to affect certain kinds of behavior under certain circumstances, but it's not going to help them really enjoy learning. Enjoying learning comes from really loving the idea of learning, not learning things just because you're being rewarded for learning them. So... With the, if you look at the kids' situation, we did an experiment at when I was teaching at Harvard at the Harvard preschool for small kids. We didn't want to impose our values on somebody else's children, so we did it with something very easy and uh, you know unimportant like toy preference. And we, uh, one of my students and I, a guy named Merrill Carl Smith. Uh, did an experiment that became a classic. It's called the Forbidden Toy Experiment. And what we did w- was we we came into the Harvard preschool with all of these uh, four- and five-year-old kids, and we had a whole bunch of toys with us. And uh, we stayed for a few weeks, and the kids were playing with the toys, and we saw which ones they really liked and which ones they liked pretty much but not greatly and 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 that sort of thing. And then we chose one toy that everybody really loved, and we took it off the floor and we put it up on a table, and we said, look, from now on, you can play with all these toys that are on the floor, but you can't play with the one that's on the table. And in one class, we said to the kids, if you play, this is the mild threat condition, if you play with that forbidden toy, um, I will think you're just a baby, okay? My, a mild threat. In the severe threat condition, we said to the kids, if you play with that toy, I'll think you're just a, a baby. I'll, I'll be really angry. And I'm going to take all my to- toys and I'm going to take them away and I'm not, I'm not going to ever come back again. And this guy, Merrill Carl Smith, was a very attractive guy. They all really, all the kids really liked him. <laughs> so that that was a big threat. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then we asked them to rate the toys both before and after this threat. And the kids in the mild threat condition liked the toy better than the kids in the severe threat condition. It was just mild enough 
to it was just strong enough to get them to stop play, to not play with that toy. They refrained from playing with the forbidden toy, but not quite enough to justify not playing it. So if the kid is sitting there and saying, "Hey, how come I'm not playing with this terrific toy?" In the severe threat condition, he knows why he's not playing with the toy, because that guy is going to call me a baby. He's going to take his toy. He's going to go home. He's going to be <laughs> mad at me. And that's a good reason. But I still really <laughs> like it. Okay. The other kid will say, ah, who wants to play with that toy anyway? It's a dumb toy. Because he doesn't have a good justification for it. Now, uh, a guy named Jonathan Friedman replicated that experiment. And three months later, somebody else came into that same room where the really attractive toy was on the floor. And he came in to test the kids on something else, allegedly. And he said, oh, I, I have to leave for a few minutes. Uh, while I'm gone, uh, why don't you uh, play with the toys? And the kids would say, could we play with all of them? And he said, oh, yeah, of course, you know. In the mild threat condition, they avoided playing with the forbidden toy. Three months wow. later, so the kids remembered that they didn't like that toy. They convinced themselves that they didn't like the toy in order to reduce the dissonance between not playing with the toy and not having a huge amount of justification, external justification, like the, the the punishment threat, um, so they convinced themselves they didn't like it anyway, and that prevented them from playing it with it in a whole new situation when there was no reason not to play with it, but they had developed their own internal reason. That's powerful. That's powerful. How can I do that with ice cream? Ice cream? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Why would you ever want to do it with ice cream? A man after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would absolutely kick myself if I don't ask you about um, self-justification and relationships because I found myself reading in bed um, with my fiance uh, as we're recording this and, you know, I would, I would get to a page and I would have to stop and read it out loud to her because it was so powerful. Um, and, and I did that for nights on end. And so I am interested if I can ask you, you know, briefly, what is, can you explain just the role of self-justification in, in relationships between partners? Yeah. Uh, well, self-justification is, um, is a very important aspect of human behavior and we do it all we do it a lot of the time and uh self-justification of course is a corollary of cognitive dissonance it's a way of reducing dissonance by convincing yourself as well as others that the thing you did which may have been a terrible mistake was really not so bad after all, was actually the best thing anyone could have done in that situation. It's a natural thing to do to protect our egos. Uh, and I really need to say this, there's a reason why that tendency is hardwired 
and why it we have evolved as a species self-justifying a lot of the time uh, because it works. It, for minor things, it helps us sleep at night. So, for example, um, if I'm at a, um, at a cocktail party, you remember the old days before COVID when we went to cocktail <laughs> parties? Uh, I, and, I, um, and we're talking and I'm holding forth about uh, poetry and uh, I talk about this terrific poem by Robert Browning. And then um, 20 minutes later, I'm leaving the party and I realize, oh my God, the poem I was quoting, the poem I recited and attributed to Robert Browning was really a poem written by Wordsworth. All those people are going to think, boy, that guy is a real moron. He doesn't know the difference between Browning and Wordsworth. <laughs> and then when I go to sleep, I'm tossing and turning all night thinking, oh, I made a fool of myself. I really made a fool of myself. Well, I think if I could justify that and say, well, it's a mistake that anybody could have made. Um, uh, and probably, you know, those idiots probably don't know the difference between Browning and Wordsworth anyway, so nobody would catch me up on it. Uh, and if they do, they'll probably forgive me. And actually, it may even make me look more human, and they may end up liking me better for being uh, for making that kind of m mistake. They say, gee, even he is capable of making that mistake. All of those <laughs> justifications will help me sleep at night, and they are harmless, okay? They're harmless, and they're useful. So I don't want to say that all self-justification is wrong, but when it comes to important, important things, like in a marriage relationship, or in a classroom, in a jigsaw classroom, or anything that's really important, or if you happen to be the president of the United States and you declare war on Iraq because you think Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and you go in there and fight that war, and six months later, some liberals will say to you, where are the weapons of mass destruction? And you say, oh, they're there. We'll find them, all right. Iraq is a big country. They're well hidden, but we'll find them. And then another six months go by, and another six months go by, and then you finally have to admit, I was wrong. There are no weapons of mass destruction. And it is embarrassing, but it's more than embarrassing you went to war for the wrong reason, but if then you can justify it and stay in that war by saying, well, there were no ma weapons of mass destruction, but Saddam Hussein is a bad guy anyway, so it's worth going to war for that reason. And then once you justify that, then it's worth going to war in Afghanistan because there are a bunch of bad guys out there. And the next thing you know, you're in a series of endless wars. Now, that's important. OK, so self-justification in marriage uh, or in any close relationship. People do it all the time. People need to be right. People will treat a loving relationship as if they're engaged in some sort of a tug-of-war, 
and they want to be right all the time. And they will fight for that, and they will justify what they've done. Uh, if a couple is doing well together, you can tell, a good marriage counselor can tell when a couple is really headed toward divorce, it's when they begin to justify all of their behavior and to begin to look at a negative interpretation of their spouse's behavior. And once they decide, once the tipping point is reached and they begin to think about the possibility of divorce, then they begin to dredge up all the negative things about their spouse that they've been keeping down for a while. You know, Benjamin Franklin, in his great wisdom, once said, um, it's good to keep your eyes wide open before marriage, before you decide on the person you want to marry, and half closed after marriage. And I think that's really good advice because marriage, as, as a lot of people, as uh, some of my students would tell me, marriage is a, um, it's an unnatural relationship for two people to decide to spend their whole lives together monogamously. Um, that's really a difficult thing, and it really is difficult. I don't think it's unnatural. I think it is uh, uh, to live with another person well is a beautiful thing, but it's rare to find a relationship where two people are living in a very loving way because they're bound to do some things that get on one another's nerves. Some people define marriage as a relationship between two people, one of whom likes to sleep with the window open and the other one demands to sleep <laughs> with the window closed. You know, That's, there, there are bound to be differences. There have to be some sort of accommodations being made. But once you decide that you think divorce might be a good idea, then all of the negative things that you have been holding back on come to the fore. Now, in any kind of relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage, it really is a good idea to take responsibility for some of the things that go wrong. If a couple is getting together to talk out some problems they've been having, accusing one another of doing something bad is a surefire way for whatever issues are going on to begin to escalate. Um, and whereas if each partner is realizes that the goal of this relationship is not for me to change my partner into a different person, but to, for me to figure out how I can adapt to this person I've decided to marry. And that is a constructive way of doing it, even though it might mean looking into some of your own annoying habits and trying to change them. That, to me, is the difference between a productive marriage and an unproductive marriage. Now, that was powerful. And I could ask you a hundred more questions, but out of respect for time, what I want to say is that this has just been one of the 
great joys of my life. And I am so, so beyond words, Professor Aronson, that, that you wanted to sit down and, and, uh, and chat with us today because you're somebody who has achieved absolutely beyond words, incredible things in this, in this um, world. And, and I'm just so, so grateful that you sat down with us today. And for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Professor Aronson, what I would recommend is read his books. Um, but if you're interested in the conversations that we had today, definitely start with Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, uh, also his memoir, Not By Chance Alone, which we got into on this conversation. Professor Aronson, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Jared, it's a pleasure. I, um, I've been retired from teaching for a long time, and I love talking about this stuff. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.